Today we're going to be talking about why art became ugly, based on a Stephen Hicks essay about the transition from uh, modern to postmodern art. Um, I'm Ion, uh, one of the founders of Read More. Uh, we use behavioral design to help you strengthen your reading habit. I'm a software designer out here in Silicon Valley. My passion is to support all of us in our doomed but defining task of self-perfection. And I'm with Jules, uh, my fiance and a senior software engineer out here in Silicon Valley as well. Hi, yeah, you pretty much summed it up. Uh, yes, I am a senior software engineer out here in Silicon Valley. And some of my hobbies include needle pointing. And, well, right now it's mostly our dog taking <laughs> up a lot of my time. I have enjoyed making art. Yeah, and I mean, you've been to like a lot of great museums. You've been, you know pretty well traveled and you have a background in philosophy mm, and one of, one of the core contentions of the essay is that modern art and postmodern art is a continuation of that um, is less of an aesthetic exercise as it is a philosophical exercise where a lot of the point of it is like the questions and discussions spurred by the art as opposed to the art itself um, so in that sense you have a strong background to contend with art as um, you know pieces of art as posing philosophical arguments yeah, that's true. That's true. And I was intrigued by one of the parts of the beginning of the essay that was talking about how rarely do new ideas um, appear first in art, and it's more common that other philosophical musings of the day end up appearing in art. Um, and the example, the world of art is not hermetically sealed. Themes are almost never generated from within the world of art. So I liked his line that the world of art is not hermetically sealed. Uh, themes are almost never generated from within the world of art. What counts as a, as a significant cultural claim, however, depends on what is going in on in the broader intellectual cultural framework. Okay, so then what I wanted was to actually find an example that he gave. Until the end of the 19th century, art was a vehicle of sensuousness, meaning, and passion. Its goals were beauty and originality. So art then wanted to like push against those ideas because of, influenced by the rise of philosophical theories of skepticism and irrationalism, um, led many to distrust their cognitive facilities of perception and reason. So, like, you know, one sense in which that might play out is in, in classic art, there's an idea that some art is better than other art, right? So it's like there are great masters and there are masterpieces. There's people who put in, you know, tons of time to, like, just really cultivate themselves in a given medium. And they, like, produce these incredible works. If you don't trust your faculty of reason, if you don't trust your perceptions, then what makes one piece of art better than the other? What, what, how is mastery meaningful in, in a world where you can't assess the value of one thing versus another and in a world where reason is divorced from reality? Hmm. Interesting. I don't think I necessi necessarily was thinking about judging one artwork against another and how those ideas are playing out in this um, transition of art. Can you go a little more into that? Yeah, yeah. So like this, this, this essay is an extra essay in a book about uh, postmodernism and the postmodern movement. And so 
one of the ways you can define postmodernism is a skepticism of meta narratives. So a meta narrative might be something like uh, art is about sublimity, originality, and mastery. Um, some art works are masterpieces. Some artists are masters of their craft, and that's worthy of recognition above and beyond the average uh, production of art. Um, so with the postmodern lens, uh, what you might say is that's just the story we're telling ourselves in reality, um, or in actuality, I should say, we don't have access to a rational reality in which we could say that one piece of art is better than another, that one artist is a master and another isn't. Therefore, the artistic enterprise has to be like reframed as, um, you know, helping to perhaps investigate and find an answer to the question of what is art. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the first half of the essay is talking about if we remove things that aren't essentially art from, from our paintings, what is left and is it still art? Mm -hmm. That was one of the themes. So if you take away perspective and conventional colors, what, what is left behind? That was one of the first examples. And he gives, um, the painting, I think it's a painting, pretty sure it is, um, The Scream. So everyone's, almost, probably familiar most people are that. familiar with The yeah. Scream since there's also a lot of renditions of it. Yeah, if you That's, guys aren't, look it up too yeah. as we go. Yeah. Basically someone's standing on a bridge and going, ah, and looks like they're screaming. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it looks um, very dreamlike. Perspective isn't that much, isn't really emphasized and and the colors are are non-traditional. The sky is orange, uh, for instance. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's... Okay, so you're taking away traditional colors and taking away um, the craft of perspective and making someone... Like, this, this looks like more like an alien than a person. Yeah, yeah. So, and Which, seeing yeah. what is left behind here and looking at truth... It doesn't have to be beautiful yeah. as well. So taking away the traditional beautiful art narrative. Yeah, and I think with that, you know, it's not like every aspect of modern art is, is negative. Like, And that's why I wanted to have this conversation yeah. with you because you're, you're a fan of modern art. And I, I'm a fan of some modern art too. Um, but I think, you know, for, for us both, we might have had moments where, and for all of you guys too, where you walk into a muse art museum and you're like, confused or even more you like see a senior art show um or you see like a marcel duchamp like uh his like urinal right yeah where he's like calls it the fountain yeah yeah and that part of the his essay i thought was interesting where marcel duchamp himself was um you know well studied in art history and people kind of a lot of people misperceive his intentions with that piece of work. So what the piece of work is, is he just went to like, you know, the early uh, 20th century equivalent of a Home Depot and he bought a urinal and he like just put it on a, on a pedestal in an art museum and called it the fountain. And a lot of people started to like look for the beauty in that piece of art um, instead of seeing that what he's trying to say is... Um, if this isn't art, why isn't it art? What is art? And also him, him kind of trying to break down that, that border between um, some things being masterpieces and some things being not. Some things being art and some things not being art. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so he isn't like this is. He isn't necessarily trying to say that this is beautiful in its own right. right. He's trying to ask you to investigate um, what about this is or isn't art. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of one of his other points. Um, sometimes the conversations that we have about modern art are what in in the end are like more valuable and more the point than than the actual art piece itself yeah yeah do you remember that part yeah 100 yeah. 100%. So it's, it's less about the value of what's produced and more about the value of the discussions produced based on what's what artifact is there in front of us yeah yeah which is why i think partially why you resonate with modern art because as a philosopher you know you um appreciate like the quality of discussion and the questions being posed by the artworks in a way where you know like like when we went to um, the Legion of Honor, we saw like the Rembrandts and stuff. They're stunning masterpieces, but they don't pose the same kind of cutting questions that modern or postmodern pieces might pose. Unless it's like you're very familiar with, um, you know, Christianity um, or, or literature, and you can see like the allusions and kind of like questions within that framework that might be posed. But a lot of Rembrandt pieces and a lot of like classic pieces, like don't pose those super deep questions yeah i can't remember what the works were to be completely honest <laughs> that's fair <laughs> i'm thinking of the uh the guy in the helmet at the end of the like second room on the left I'll, I'll just just look up like rembrandt guy with shiny helmet you'll probably find it is it more classical art right it's not I think considered so. modern art yeah that's my point yeah it's like classical art doesn't doesn't seem to pose the same kind of cutting questions but that painting is like beautifully sublime yeah and captures you you know yeah it does yeah yeah and um to go back to what we were talking about how beauty used to be emphasized and then in modern and postmodern art it it's stripped away not in all cases but that's some of the things that are being played with. Like, if we take away the beautiful, is it, is it still art? Yeah. Is one way that the essayist would think of it. Yeah, 100%. Um, and something that I wanted to bring up to frame this conversation, but I forgot to at first, was what he was saying just on the very first page uh, in the first paragraph was, of co- course, the major works of the 20th century are, are ugly. Of course, many are offensive, and of course, a five-year-old could in many cases have made an indistinguishable product. Those points are not arguable, and they are entirely besides the main question. The important question is, why has the art of the world of the 20th century adopted the ugly and the offensive so that's interesting because I think a lot of people take the tack today like it is beautiful and yeah you know I know I, plenty of times I've said oh well a five-year-old couldn't have made this yeah yeah um, yeah but that's interesting maybe I'm arguing the wrong thing or I could have taken a different tact you know it's it's more about what are they trying to say and in the eyes of this essay it could be that they're trying to say if I take away content and perspective and even 
a thought out composition. So I'm thinking of Jackson Pollock right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So if I take out, you know, perspective, composition, planned composition, I forgot what the other one I said, is it still art in the end? And a five-year-old couldn't necessarily pose that question. Yeah, And yeah. of course, maybe we're putting words in the mouth of Jackson Pollock, um, but I do think that's an interesting way to think about it. He's playing with the idea of what art could be. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, looking at the broader tradition that led up to Jackson Pollock, you know, even if he isn't... Because this is a question that we've been kind of, like, talking about um, based around this book, is Jackson Pollock may not be, like, you know, explicitly in his own mind a postmodern artist, Mm -hmm. but if all his peers and influences are, he is expressing a philosophy of art that he's imbibed implicitly, mm. you know, in his work. Right. I don't, I don't know how explicit he was or wasn't about this stuff, right. but yeah. yeah. It's kind of like how, um, in, in the storytelling book, like the guy presupposes that our, our conscious experience is a controlled hallucination that has very little bearing or connection with, uh, bless you. Early <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. He assumes like your your entire co- conscious experience is like this controlled hallucination without a connection to reality. Um, he's not explicitly like a you know counter enlightenment anti realist, but all of his like influences are, and therefore his like implicit assumption is that. Um, yeah. That's also an interesting philosophical question. You know, if, if you don't necessarily label yourself a certain way, but all your influences can fall under a certain label, does that make you that thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good point, because part of the premise of the, the book broadly is, um, is that um, postmodernism is actually a continuation of the German counter-enlightenment, starting with Kant. And the postmodernists might not consider themselves that way, though all of their influences are members of that movement. Right. Yeah. Let's go find out if the dog is destroying that room. Yeah. Then we can come back. <laughs> Where do we leave off? Well, uh, we were talking about whether or not um, people's... If someone has influences that are um, ascribing to a certain philosophical movement, does that make them a member of that movement, even if they aren't explicitly, like considering themselves a part of that movement. Okay. Are we recording again? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So our dog was destroying the room. Yeah, but we gave him a Kong and... Yeah, filled it with kibble and peanut butter. (laughs) 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 Okay, that's a lie. We only filled it with kibble. But we gave him... He had peanut butter earlier. Yeah. He's... Earlier. I just proud. thought it'd be weird just to say it was only full <laughs> That's fair. Anyway. Okay. Do you want to take this and... Is there another idea you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, there's Anything lots. I, I guess, like, one thing I would ask you about is, like... Let me see here. Let me, like, pause. Okay, so 
there are four major themes that kind of separate postmodernism from modernism. Um, they're all pretty deep and, and worthy of discussion. Um, the first one is just the general anti-realism of postmodernism. So the idea that our reality is largely, if not completely, socially constructed, and uh, we don't have access to noumenal reality, which is like the objective reality outside of ourselves, if it exists at all. Um, that's kind of a core tenet of postmodern philosophy, and it filters down to their to their art um, in that art can no longer be about reality or nature. It can only be about um, self-reference, social construction, and um, irony. Um, an example would be like it's more acceptable to have art about a social reality rather than actual reality yeah yeah yes yeah, um, so. so like all these pieces talking about like about um racism sexism etc would fall neatly into that idea of talking about social reality yeah yeah and a lot mm -hmm. of modern art is focused in those areas and others like it yeah yeah which kind of speaks to um this this nietzschean core of postmodernism wherein like at the center of reality is like an amoral power struggle um which i think is one of the things that's really damaging about this philosophy because depending on the postmodern depending on the individual philosopher um it seems like everything is just social construction, but the reality of power uh, is, is, is treated as if it meaningfully exists. Um, so like, what would be the point of making uh, art that's anti-racist if there wasn't some kind of like bald-faced power struggle that needs to be redressed or, or, uh, or entered into, you know? Um, I don't understand fully what you're saying. I guess what I'm saying is, if 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 postmodernism kind of presupposes we don't have meaningful access to reality, right? But still, it it takes stances. So why take stances, and why take a, a set of stances that cohere um, on a particular political side? You're saying it's wrong and arbitrary to say that social reality isn't part of our reality that we're perceiving like what what's the difference there is that what you're challenging mm, not quite i mean i think i think that, that that's a good point that like social reality uh is is a part of reality itself as well um especially the observable aspects but i guess what i'm just trying to like underscore is this 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 aspect of postmodernism where they're like involved in social commentary over discussions of like reality or nature. Um, the social commentary always tends to fall on one side of things. Um, it falls very neatly within kind of a, a left-wing political sphere. Um, if postmodernism didn't have kind of a moral bent or, or a set of core uh, political beliefs, you would expect that there would be postmodern art like all over the spectrum. Right, it's anti-realist, so you know w why is it all concentrated on one set of real issues, right? Why is it what you're saying? Yeah, and and the rationale that Stephen Hicks gives is the reason for that is postmodernism came up in a time where um, the far left was like you know struggling for evidence to support their their views um, in the fifties, 
Um, so they adopted these anti-realist philosophies to give themselves cover so they no longer needed evidence to support their claims. Hmm. And the far right also used uh, not strictly postmodernism, but the precursor philosophies of postmodernism. That kind of like um, German counter-enlightenment, like anti-realist um, streak to justify what they were doing too. Yeah, I just, I, I guess since it's, it's hard for me to draw that connection between people left wing in the, in the 50s and bring it through to today. You know, some of the most active people today are young people that weren't alive then. So it's, that's what's always kind of challenging for me with these ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way I would, I would consider it is like, there's this, this like anti-realist streak, right? And, and in any given generation of art, the form, content, and function of that art is informed by the generation before. So there's kind of like this this ongoing conversation that connects back to the 50s and further back. So the postmodern artists of today um, are, are inheriting like a, a set of tenets from their precursors going all the way back. Are you, according to Stephen Hicks, going all the way back to the Kantian counter-enlightenment? Okay, so what was their struggle for finding evidence? So, so the art is of philosophy and downstream of like life, right? So in, in life, what was happening is like, you know, in, 19, uh, in the 1950s, the Soviets turned um, tanks on students in Hungary. Um, it was another uh, Marxist revolution that had failed. Um, the evidence was stacking up against the... the the far left in terms of the efficacy of their programs people weren't wealthier as they predicted people weren't um, as equal as they would as they predicted they would be um, nikita khrushchev like admitted that stalin had killed millions of people so there was kind of a crisis of um belief on the far left like what do we do now you know like all of our ideas have been kind of like discredited and, mm-hmm. and we're in danger of like losing so interesting the to me that like that's those ideas are considered the far left what like communism or marxism yeah i guess so because i mean it's so controlling <laughs> yeah it i mean it's like the opposite yeah and there was, a, there was an essay i read recently where they were like the real debate today is not between left and right it's between authoritarianism and liberalism you know where liberalism is about like individual freedom and rights authoritarianism is about control um, and Stephen Hicks alludes to that too, where he's like, the collectivist right, the Nazis, fascists, Mussolini, people like that, and the um, collectivist left, the Marxists, the Maoists, the, the Leninists, they all rely on uh, irrationalism, um, sowing discord through radical skepticism and anti-realism to sell their their um, agenda. That's dangerous. But I do find the ideas of skepticism very interesting. Yeah, 100%. I don't think skepticism is inherently bad at all. Um, It's important to question things. Yeah, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. 
Yeah, I think um, it, it, to me, it's not about questioning things. It's like it's coming from actually it's about actually being unquestioning. It's like taking as an unquestioned assumption that reality is inaccessible to us, you know, um, not not all skeptics made that conclusion. No, they didn't. D- Descartes, I mean, who's the he his meditations started by assuming we can't know anything and he realized that all we can know is that we exist because you are a thinking thing Mm -hmm. and on that he spends the rest of his meditations building up based on that foundation and finally concluding that he can trust his perceptions Mm -hmm. but descartes is a rationalist He's a rationalist. He's not a scout. Okay. But he's, he's, he has an element of skepticism, but I would say the difference between like earlier skeptics and... But he didn't allow, I guess, the element of his thinking that I always found inspiring was that he didn't assume anything was true. He had to prove it. Well, I guess that's very rational. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Like, yeah, I, I think, I think that's... That's a rigorous way to do it. You know what I mean? Like, um, I think there's a lot to admire in that, but it's not just like skepticism is bad by any means. And and it's not even just that postmodernism is necessarily like always bad. Um, it's more so, you know, using extreme skepticism in a um, pragmatic sense to kind of like throw your... Uh, conversational opponents like off balance so you can buy more time to like maneuver that i think is wrong yeah um i don't know it, that wasn't really written as much in the essay so i'm having trouble really um yeah that's that's fair that's why i'm, I'm sharing it yeah, yeah like in, in the core of the book they, they talk about that where and, and the reason this is relevant is that postmodern uh nihilism anti-realism um the development of postmodernism as a means for radical collectivist um, academics to kind of get cover for their viewpoints is why you see those themes in postmodern art. It's why there aren't like, you know, super right wing pieces of postmodern art, you know? Interesting. What would that even look like? Well, it would be like Nazi propaganda, basically, right? It would be like radically anti-realist, um, ugly, um, and constantly like reinforcing a handful of political tenets, you know, um, but not having to like lean on reason, being able to tell people, you know, trust your feelings. Uh, we start with our feelings and, and reason is inaccessible to us anyway, you know. Or reason isn't a meaningful tool uh, for interacting with reality. Yeah. I like reason. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, me, me, me too. Me too. Um, Are there any other themes? Uh, Yeah. We could talk about potentially. What kind of came up at the end is some of the popular themes explored in postmodernism. Yeah, so which were pretty striking. Yeah, they, they definitely are. So we talked about the um, 
that 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 anti-realism is kind of a foundational aspect of postmodernism. Um, the second is this idea of deconstruction. Well, also modernism. And modernism. Yeah, yeah. Um, so deconstruction um, is kind of like what's a good definition of deconstruction? They they had a good definition uh, in in the book earlier. Basically, it's like breaking down the um, the definitions of things and investigating them and peeling back layers to find their kind of like hidden um, hidden meaning or structure. So back to the idea of if we take this out of art, is it still art? Yeah, yeah. So in, in modernism, there was a degree of reductionism, trying to like you know mm-hmm. dig down and uh, figure out you know. What 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 is art if we remove all these aspects of it? Yeah, I think another some more things that were removed. That was actually first half of the essay, um, not the second half. I mean, I I read it more recently, so yeah, that's yeah. why I can remember. Um, I read it just before this podcast. Um, right. And it was one more example, if I recall, was removing the illusion of three D because an art. Art is inherently 2D, so it should appear to be what it actually is. And so um, the examples of sort of pop art, the more flattened art, removing even the textural aspects of the paint itself yeah, in order yeah. to appear exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, later artists sort of saw that as, you know, that pop art is sort of cheating because it includes content another thing that can be removed from a painting and potentially still leaving a art behind and and then it was what was it Liechtenstein's or yeah something his yeah. famous like it was like a comic pop book art. style yeah, yeah well comic book style the piece of art that was called brushstroke yeah so it was just it was exactly what it appeared to be you know it was a brush stroke, but it was pop artified. Yeah. It wasn't pretending to be 3D. It didn't sneak in some content. And yeah, that, that was kind of interesting to hear about that conversation, cultural conversation, or that conversation between different art pieces. Yeah. As they evolved. Well, you know, with that, you see kind of the reintroduction of content in postmodernism along like a, a, a set of social themes. Um, as opposed to that, where they're they're trying to remove all content. Yeah, you can only go so far, and then you know that conversation is kind of over. Yeah, at yeah. A certain point. I mean, I think they went so far as there was that art piece, white on white. Yeah. They were even removing color, mm-hmm. and that other art piece, abstract art. I forgot who the artists were, but that was just a black grid or black cross on black. Yeah barely indistinguishable, pretty indistinguishable. Um, and those pieces were, again, removing thought-out composition, moving, removing color, and seeing what's left behind. Mm-hmm. So that re- I think it can also be considered reductionist on that. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. So that yeah. was an interesting progression. And then you were right, and then postmodern art sort of brought content back into the picture. Yeah. And he makes the interesting statement sort of at the end. He, he said, postmodern art hasn't really done much 
beyond what had already been doing been going on a century before they haven't yeah. really taken us as far as challenging what art is yeah and he's like he kind of at the end kind of leaves the challenge out there on the table you know what's next let's see what you can do yeah yeah and i'm, I'm curious to see where it'll go i mean i think one example um frankly is like you know the golden age of TV, uh, movies, right? Like the thing about high art is, because another thing he says at the end is he's like, the art community is, you know, increasingly irrelevant. It's, um, you know, this this tiny, it's, it's marginalized, inbred, and conservative, which is funny, right? Because like they don't consider themselves conservative, but they're just playing upon these same ever narrower set of themes from modernism. Mm. Uh, whereas the world of, um, you know, you might say, commercial art or, or design or um, entertainment uh, is, is much broader and, and um, exploring a much wider range of themes that are more representative of our actual like lives and experiences, you know? Give an example. Well, I mean, if you look at like TV shows, right? Like you look at um, Midnight Mass, like Midnight Mass touches upon much more that's of relevance to our lives than, you know, uh, Malevich is like white on white like painting you know even yeah. though that's modernist but like here, here's an example of like a postmodernist piece of art right it's a, oh the performance artist that's like taking a shit on stage and then throwing his feces yeah exactly like ha, uh. like that that represents uh, such a small aspect of human life if at all like it yeah. might represent something like absurdity right yeah. the sense of absurdity like might be playing with like social norms okay but like like he's saying it's kind of a tired like thing where they keep trying to press our buttons and like keep like what is what does he say he's, he's like the the he, yeah he was like that's already been done with the fountain yeah yeah that, that urinal that was put on a pedestal yeah, he's no, you're like not saying anything new with your shit on stage. <laughs> no, agree. Or your shit in cans. Like that's another piece of postmodern yeah. art is just like shit in cans. But yeah, that the artist canned and then sold what ninety cans of his own shit. Yeah, which is like at first I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like cans that were labeled artists' shit. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's funny. And then when I was reading, it was like he actually canned his own feces and sold it. Yeah. One of which was sold to like a British museum for like forty thousand dollars, and I was like, seriously? And just to like you know not to like um, be righteous about it, but forty thousand dollars is the amount of money you would make like like working on a construction site, like doing real work or like you know like doing adding something value. meaningful, adding some real value. Like yeah, forty k is what you would make like in your first year, like. You, that's almost twice as much, I believe, as you would make as, like, an entry-level person in the military. For a can of some, like, like complete assholes, like, shit. Yeah. You know? Sorry, I think I um, derailed you. You were trying to make a point. No, I mean, you didn't derail me. It's basically, like, what Stephen Hicks says is the gross-outs have become mechanical and repetitive. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a, a game played out within a narrow range of assumptions, and, you know, people are just tired of it yeah please say something um, new yeah <laughs> he's yeah. asking us yeah and and it goes back to the four themes right like we were talking about the themes we talked about deconstruction 
like more radical deconstruction, the reintroduction of content um, as being social commentary. Mm. Um, but there's also like this yeah, uh, nihilism. I don't, we, I don't know if we said it, but yeah, con- content itself was one thing that um, reductionists played with removing and seeing if art was behind. I yeah, we did. Yeah, that, yeah, we talked about like what oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. Yeah. So the um, another important uh, theme is this kind of like ruthless nihilism. So dealing with themes of power, um, and and basically it's like how can we more thoroughly eliminate positivity in art? You know, how can we be more relentlessly negative? And you see that in you know an artist like canning their shit. You know, it's not like it's not for people to have a positive experience you know yeah I, I imagine very few people would but I mean he sold 90 cans yeah but that's because again this of this like you know inbred and self-referential community of high art where it's like a lot of emperor's new clothes dynamics you know yeah um, it goes back to the episode with Frederick Douglass which I recommend you guys listen to where we talk about conformity and kind of if you have three people on the street staring upward to the sky other people will stop and stare at the sky even though they don't see anything there you know? i totally would yeah it's a natural thing or like yeah. if everyone's in the elevator and facing the wrong way you gonna, tend to start facing the wrong way yeah. like um so it i think the same to feel thing un- uncomfortable to face the way you normally face if everyone else is facing the other way yeah 100 percent yeah and with modern art too, like if if all the other collectors are like, oh, this is high art, we have to like you know treat it as such. The compulsion is to see it the same way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, like other examples of this nihilism that you see in, in uh, postmodern art. In two thousand, there was an art exhibition where um, an artist was you know, asking patrons to place a goldfish into a blender and turn it on. Um, I didn't like that one. Yeah, I thought that was pretty fucked up. Yeah. Super fucked up. Needlessly, I mean, is the word violent? It's just needlessly cruel, at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and, and that's the thing about, you know, ultimately that's part of the thing about an attack on reason is without reason you're able to find justification for anything right and and actually that's the reason that postmodernism had to arise because there were cruelties being perpetrated that could not be rationalized so rationality itself had to be softened or put in its place um, in order to continue to believe in the movements that were producing the atrocities that you saw in the mid 20th century or throughout the 20th century really and you i think you already gave examples of that what were those again um like the the purges and the starvation of yeah. like stalinism people you know going to gulags people being arrested for mowing the lawn too much and sent away for decades or you know for criticizing the government like solzhenitsyn who was like the the author who really destroyed the intellectual credibility of uh, of marxism he was a, a russian war hero and for the soviets fighting for the soviets and he went to the gulag for criticizing the government minorly in a, in a letter personal letter um and when he was in the gulag he wrote a book called the gulag archipelago 
which just completely undercut the credibility of um, of Marxism. Wow. But stuff like that, like stuff like a, a guy who's a war hero, or like George Orwell. We we're talking about George Orwell, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, You know, you, you go, you're a, a comfortable English writer with, you know, who, who went to Eton, you know, um, and you literally stick your neck out for freedom. You go to Spain to fight against the fascists, you know, for a, a Marxist militia, you get shot in the neck and you're not a hero, you're persecuted. Yeah, right. by the other factions, right? Well, by the majority factions, which are which are Stalinist. Yeah. And the idea there being like, even if you're a hero, like, you, 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 you still like, just get treated with this like arbitrary cruelty and that kind of arbitrariness like cannot be rationalized. So you need something else to continue to support it. You know? Yeah. Ooh, that could be a good note to end on. Oh, unless you had something else you wanted to pull out. Well, I had an interesting thing here about uh, about this type of anti-realism that started with Kant. Let's see. It's an interesting uh, analogy that they gave. Yeah, so so in a way, this anti-realist streak that's expressed in postmodern art and in postmodernism writ large starts with Kant. An interesting way to see the argument that he was making, uh, Stephen Hicks posed was like, let's say you have someone who's like, I believe that women should be liberated and should have choice and be empowered. As long as they're in the kitchen, they should be able to choose what to make. <laughs> they should be able to like, you know, decide how it's decorated. They should be empowered to like do the things that they see fit as long as they stay in the kitchen. That's how Kant treated reason, where he's like, I think reason is self-consistent. It's like universal. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, it has this internal coherence, but it has to stay in your skull because actual reality is inaccessible to you because of the... Um, non-neutral um, state of your perceptual system. What does he mean by it has to stay in your head? It means like you, according to him, you can't interact with, meaningfully interact with uh, objective reality outside of yourself. And I'm not like a Kantian scholar, but you know, for like, for you guys listening and for us, we're STEM people. You know, we're type A, like, folks working in the workforce. We're trying to stay intellectually engaged. So we don't need to be Kantian scholars to enter the conversation. Um, that's my take. If one of you has, like, a deeper take, please email us at contact at rdmr.io. Um, or hit us up on Twitter at rdmr underscore io. And, yeah, give us your take. Like, I'm the point of this is to, like, learn more and, and engage. engage yeah and like you know deepen our, our understanding of um what's you know what's been what's been going on like what conversation what what is the intellectual conversation that's been transpiring for the past several hundred years you know and where are we at now and what does it tell us about where we're going and investigate the nature of our experience in reality you know hell yeah let's investigate that experience let's do it <laughs> Uh, if you guys want to check out Stephen Hicks's book, it's called Explaining Postmodernism. Uh, his essay that we explore today is From Modern to Postmodern Art, Why Art Became Ugly. Um, again, not an indictment of all modern art. The idea that art shouldn't solely be preoccupied with beauty and can also be intended to pose philosophical questions is, is 
an interesting thing. And there is interesting modern art coming from that lens. But if you've wondered why you go to the art museum and there's like a urinal there, <laughs> hopefully we've shed some light on why that might be. Yeah. You know? Or if you go and see, I think there was some sort of basketball poster that was just signed by an artist. And yeah. Framed. If if you go and you wonder why what's happening there, it's part of the same conversation. Yeah. 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 That that was a piece that was very memorable for me. I can't remember what it was. Well, I'm glad you shared that one. I don't remember that. One. Oh, because yeah. oh, it's not in the book. That's you've seen. Oh yeah, that one. I saw it in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. All right, we'll come back next week for Science of Storytelling Part 2. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about uh, game theory. My hope is we're going to talk about the uh, potential for applying game theory in your uh, life and work, but also the limitations. Like My hope is we'll touch upon McNamara. Uh, we'll touch upon some of the failings uh, there as well of like basically like over-trusting um, theory that's like not perfectly in sync with reality. You know, but it's also a powerful framework for considering how you interact with other uh, actors in competitive settings. So, yeah, keep your ear out for those and, and uh, like and, well, I guess you can't like, just like subscribe. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Goodbye.